Hey everyone, welcome to the Her Head and Films podcast. I'm your host, my name is Caitlin. In this podcast, I share my personal thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. If you're new to the podcast and you've never listened before and you don't know who I am, as I said, my name is Caitlin. Um, I'm a writer, I'm a blogger, I consider myself a dreamer. I love literature, art, poetry, and over the last few years I've really developed an intense passion for art house cinema and world cinema, and I created this podcast as a way to talk about the films that I watch. I live in a rural area, I don't have an art house theater where I live, I don't have any kind of cinephile culture where I live, so I... I needed to create this podcast as an outlet for my emotions and feelings about film. And it is a very personal podcast, and I will be very upfront about that. Um, if you're new to the podcast, you probably are wondering about the title. It comes from an email I sent a friend a few years ago. I was in a very intense, obsessive state about cinema and I wrote that my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. And so when I got to thinking about starting this podcast, I thought Her Head in Films was a really great way to encapsulate how I feel about films, how I'm always thinking about them, and how they're so much a part of my life. I do have a Patreon for this podcast. Um, you can find it at patreon.com slash herheadinfilms. Um... It's a website where people can help support and sustain people who are creating, you know, podcasts or videos or writing. And I do have to pay to keep the podcast going. I have to pay for the storage and stuff like that. So if you'd like to financially help out, I would appreciate it. You, I have different rewards at different levels, at different tiers that you can donate at. Um, you can recommend a film to me and I'll review it. You can get a postcard from me. You can vote on content. There are all kinds of different ways. I even have um, a mini podcast that I do that's about 10 to 15 minutes long. And I, I review films and, and talk about cinema that way as well. And you can get access to that. At one level, you can get a shout out on each episode. So I would like to give a shout out to Jesse, Carolyn, and Michelle. Thank you all very much for supporting the podcast. I really do appreciate it. And um, it means a lot to me. All of you who listen, it means a lot to me. It really does. I can't really put it into words, honestly. But thank you, Carolyn, Jesse, and Michelle. I really do appreciate it. Today's episode is going to be about Hiroshima Mon Amour. It's a 1959 French film by Alain René. It's a very important film in cinema history. It's a difficult film to tackle. I'm kind of nervous about tackling it, actually. I don't actually feel like worthy of this film. But I'm going to do my best with it. And the reason I'm talking about it this week is that I, I read the screenplay. I've seen the film several times. And I read the screenplay by Marguerite Duras, who's a really important writer in my life. And I read the screenplay recently. And so it got me thinking about the film again. And 
This review is going to be a little bit experimental. I'm sort of going to try to bring a lot of different texts together. It's going to be about words and language a little bit more than visuals. Um, so I'm a little bit nervous about it, but I this film demands, I think, a lot from the viewer. And I think it demands almost a different way of reviewing a film, right? Because the film itself is so unique and so difficult. So first I'm going to share notes that I took in 2000, August 2016 when I rewatched the film last year. And these are just basically, this might have been the first time I watched it. And so that's why I'm sharing these notes. It's just, it, it gives a plot of the film and it also just sort of sets things up, I think. And so that's why I wanted to share them. And there will be spoilers in this review, although Hiroshima Mana More is not a linear narrative. It's not like it's very plot driven or, I mean, there, I don't know if there is a lot to spoil. I mean, there's not necessarily some big reveal or some big twist. It's almost like a poem film in a way. And Rene is part of the new wave, the French new wave. I find his cinema and his films to be incredibly challenging. Um, I haven't seen a lot of his films. I've seen Hiroshima Mon Amour. I've seen Night and Fog, which is a film he did about the Holocaust, um, where he used archival footage of the camps when the bodies were discovered. And so he's someone, I think, who's very concerned with atrocity and horror and war and violence. And you can see that, I think, throughout his body of work, at least what I've seen. Um, Hiroshima Mon Amour was his first feature film. Before that, he had made short films like Night and Fog. Um, and I've also seen Muriel or The Time of Return. That's what it's called. And that's another really, really difficult film about war and violence and memory and I really think Rene was probably ahead of his time. He was probably even ahead of where we're at right now with cinema language. Because, like I said, I find his work very challenging. I don't know if there's a language to talk about it. Because it really is... It's poetic. It's nonlinear. It's fragmented. It almost has a feel of something literary in a way. Like the way he mixes images with words... So it, it makes sense that he teamed with Marguerite Duras for Hiroshima Mon Amour because she is similarly in the realm of literature a very difficult, challenging, experimental writer. So these are my notes from 2016 when I think I first watched the film or just seriously watched it. A French woman and Japanese man are in bed. They are lovers. They are in Hiroshima. She is acting in a film that is being made there. The first 15 minutes are a dialogue between the man and woman. She says she saw Hiroshima. He contradicts her, saying she never saw Hiroshima. They go on like this, contradicting each other, and their voices are played over footage of the devastation left by the atomic bomb. Children in hospitals, the museum at Hiroshima. The man is an architect and in politics. It's her last day in Hiroshima. She's in a film about peace. She talks about living in Nevers in France. Something happened there. He doesn't want her to go. He loves her. He is married. 
She is also married and has children. In Nevers, during the war, she fell in love with a German soldier. The soldier died. Flashbacks. She is in a cellar, her hair shorn off. Retribution for being with a German soldier. She is being punished for loving the enemy. She is a disgrace. She's broken a taboo. The man and woman talk at a cafe. She talks about being in a cellar, which is her prison. The Japanese man takes on the persona of the dead German soldier. The haunting that begins once a war has ended. The townspeople cut her hair and laugh at her. The Hiroshima bombing represents the end of the war for her and many others. Her pain over the soldier's death is very deep. Like Antigone, the text acts, asks us to look at what it means to mourn someone considered an enemy. She finds him on the ground shot and stays with him as he dies. The love she feels for the Japanese man is the first time she's felt that since her German lover. The Japanese man is the only person she's ever told about the German soldier. He doesn't want her to leave. She tries to let go of the past, send it into oblivion, but I'm not convinced she can do that. She says his name is Hiroshima, and he says her name is Nevers, and that's how it ends. So these were my notes as I was watching it last year. So the and it tells the basic plot. It's about a man and a woman. He's Japanese. She's French. The woman is played by Emmanuel Riva, who recently died. And the man is played by Eiji Okada. She's French. She's Japanese. He's an architect. She's an actress in a film about peace that's being filmed in Hiroshima. Over the course of the film, they make love. They are lovers. And she shares her own trauma of World War II when she fell in love with a German soldier who was killed and she was punished for loving him. She was put in a cellar, her hair was cut, she was attacked by the townspeople of the of Nevers where she lived. So that is the basics. That is really the plot, the bones of the film and then there is the language of the film that was written by Marguerite de Raw and taken from her screenplay. So what was Hiroshima? That's an important thing that I think we have to talk about. On August 6, 1945, the American military, American government dropped a bomb on Hiroshima, Japan. A few days later, on August 9th, 1945, they also dropped another atomic bomb on Nagasaki. This was the first time that nuclear weapons had been used against people. Um, the Both of the bombings killed at least 129,000 people, and they remain the only use of nuclear weapons for warfare in history. These bombings brought... World War II to an end, basically. So that is Hiroshima. That is the basics of it, that this atomic bomb was dropped. But what does it mean to drop an atomic bomb? And this is something I've grappled with for much of my life, because when I was younger, 
I used to watch the History Channel a lot. Now, nowadays, the History Channel doesn't show a lot of actual history. But when I was growing up in the 90s and the early 2000s, they did show a lot of documentaries, especially about World War II, and they would show some about Hiroshima. And I watched them, and I was scarred by these documentaries. I remember watching one, um, and I remember that people were literally vaporized, that there was something called these shadows that would be on the wall of buildings where people had been and where they no longer were, and somehow their shadow had been put on the wall. And then I remember there was a child who was playing on his bicycle, and the child was eradicated while the bicycle remained. And so I remember watching these documentaries very young, probably 10, 11, 12, because I was very interested in the Holocaust from a young age and interested in the Second World War because of that. And I remember just being horrified by this. Um, I didn't know what to make of it, you know. And so watching Hiroshima Mon Amour, I felt like this was a film that was actually trying to grapple with the dropping of the atomic bomb. And I think as an American, it's even harder because you know that your government did this, that that you are in some way responsible, that your country did this. And I don't think we have fully, as Americans, ever reflected on it or grappled with it or apologized for it. Or, I mean, there are people to this day that justify it, that say that, well, it had to be done. And I would argue with that. And I don't agree with that. And um, so it's a very complicated issue, especially as an American, because we are responsible for the only time that nuclear weapons were ever used in warfare um, and, and against a civilian, an innocent civilian population. So I find that really difficult to deal with. So Indira's screenplay... And it's fascinating to read this screenplay because it comes with a lot of extra information as well. It has photographs in it from the film. But she writes, um, in the screenplay, she writes, impossible to talk about Hiroshima. All one can do is talk about the impossibility of talking about Hiroshima. And thus I see, I think this is why Hiroshima Mana More is so experimental. It is so challenging, is that Renee could not use the traditional cinematic tools or techniques to talk about Hiroshima because Hiroshima marks this line. There is the world before Hiroshima and the unleashing of the nuclear bomb. And then there there is a time before that and then there is a time after. And we enter the nuclear age. We enter the atomic age, the Cold War era, and even now. We look at what's happening with North Korea and how tensions are starting to ramp up in 
between North and South Korea and between the U.S. and North Korea because of missiles, because of the worry that they will develop nuclear weapons. So this is a legacy that we continue to deal with. How do we talk about Hiroshima? And like I said, I'm just thinking about where I want to go next. Like I said, this is a difficult film to talk about. I want to talk about the opening scene. I think this is important to talk about it before I go any further. The opening scene of Hiroshima Monomore is about 15 minutes. The first 15 minutes, I would say. And this is a scene that I consider one of the greatest film scenes ever done. I, it leaves me breathless. It is breathtaking. It is serious. It is challenging. But it's also straightforward. And that's when we meet the lovers, she and he. They never have a name. They're always she and he. And it opens with the lovers together and gold dust rains down on their skin. All you see is his back and you see her fingers on the back of his, on his skin and on his back. This is really sort of a beautiful moment that will be juxtaposed with the later horror that is shown. He keeps saying that she saw nothing in Hiroshima. She says that she did see things in Hiroshima. She talks about what she saw at a hospital. We And then, so as him and her are speaking, their, their voices, it's like a voiceover. And then we see these other images. We see a hospital. We see people with burns. She then talks about what she saw at the museum in Hiroshima. Um, and it's very interesting to see Riva and Okada's bodies, their beautiful, young, intact bodies of these lovers that are then set against these burned bodies and the remains that are left by the atomic bomb that you see in the museum. At the museum, she sees photographs, reconstructions, twisted metal, a bouquet of bottle caps, a bicycle, masses of hair. She says that she saw the newsreels when the atomic bomb was first dropped in the first few days. But what does she really know? And that's why he tells her, you saw nothing, you know nothing. I think he's trying to say, like Dura said in the screenplay, the impossibility of knowing that you can look at these newsreels, you can look at these photographs, but you can never really know what it was like to be there, what it smelled like, what it felt like, the, the true horror of it. And of course, the film can't fully recreate it either. That's why it doesn't try to. If you think about it, this is a film about Hiroshima, about the bombing of Hiroshima, without any kind of recreations or reconstructions of the bombing. And Rene did this in Night and Fog, too, about the Holocaust and about the death camps. He used archival footage. He did not try to simulate or recreate what happened. And so I think you see that with this as well, that you just have this couple, you have these lovers talking. And and then you have that as a voiceover on the images of Hiroshima taken by newsreels, news cameras. So these are videos of suffering, videos of burned bodies, um, 
we see a face with an empty eye socket. And then this scene sort of ends um, with her saying it will happen again, sort of reminding us that these sorts of horrors and this sort of violence and war is continuous. It is continuous in the history of the world that the horror at Hiroshima will find some kind of of re it will be repeated in some form in the future maybe not through an atomic bomb being dropped although at the time that was a possibility even now it's still a possibility but that this type of violence and horror is constant in the world so I want to talk a bit more about that horror through um, notes that I took about John Hersey's book Hiroshima. This is sort of considered the sort of landmark book about Hiroshima. It was taken, it was written from, you know, first-hand accounts and and what Hersey saw and, and the um, stories that he collected by other survivors at Hiroshima. It's a profoundly important work of journalism. I believe that it was first serialized or published in the New Yorker um, shortly after um, the bomb was dropped. But I just want to read parts of it. Um, as I say, I'm trying to almost be experimental in this review a bit. I'm trying to mix texts. I'm trying to mix commentary and because I just don't know how else to talk about it because I'm not in a position to really talk about it, am I? I mean, taking on a film like this, I feel really insecure and I feel really like, well, what can I say about this? But I want to say something. I think this is a film that demands a reaction, that demands that you feel something, that you say something. So these are all portions taken from John Hersey's book, Hiroshima. Then a tremendous flash of light cut across the sky. And this is important because everybody at Hiroshima, almost all of the survivors report seeing a flash of light, that that's what the bomb was like, those who survived it. One woman, um, she was in she was in an area and this is very interesting but here's the line there in the tin factory in the first moment of the atomic age a human being was crushed by books a woman was in a factory and a bookcase was behind her or near her and when the bomb went off the bookcase fell on top of her and she was crushed by books I thought that was a really interesting image from this uh, book and this account Another quote, in a city of 245,000, nearly 100,000 people had been killed or doomed at one blow. 100,000 more were hurt. <coughs> so in like one second, in one moment, 100,000 people were killed. This is a quote from the text. The eyebrows of some were burned off and skin hung from their faces and hands. Others, because of pain, held their arms up as if carrying something in both hands. Some were vomiting as they walked. Many were naked or in shreds of clothing. On some undressed bodies, the burns had made patterns of undershirt straps and suspenders, and on the skin of some women, 
since white repelled the heat from the bomb and dark clothes absorbed it and conducted it to the skin the shapes of flowers they had had on their kimonos that image has always haunted me so some women's bodies had flowers the shapes of flowers burned onto their skin from their kimonos this is a quote the asphalt of the streets was still so soft and hot from the fires that walking was uncomfortable another quote in the garden on the way to the shelter he noticed a pumpkin roasted on the vine they got out several bags of rice and gathered up several other cooked pumpkins and dug up some potatoes that were nicely baked under the ground and started back so the bomb was so hot that it cooked pumpkins and potatoes in the ground a quote he reached down and took a woman by the hands but her skin slipped off in huge glove-like pieces another quote when he had penetrated the bushes he saw there were about twenty men and they were all in exactly the same nightmarish state their faces were wholly burned their eye sockets were hollow the fluid from their melted eyes had run down their cheeks these are first-hand accounts at hiroshima so i just wanted to read them i wanted to make them part of the review because this is the horror that renee knows that he cannot represent in his film so he uses language he uses symbolic imagery perhaps he uses other ways to talk about the horror he almost talks about the horror without talking about it in a way just as dura said quote impossible to talk about hiroshima all one can do is talk about the impossibility of talking about hiroshima and the man keeps telling her you saw nothing nothing and this made me think, what does it mean to see, to truly see? I found myself thinking that as I read the screenplay. And this review is almost more about the screenplay than the film, but they're, but they're both one. I mean, you can't talk about one without the other. He just keeps telling her, you saw nothing. And she, what does it mean to see? What do we see? How is what we, what we see mediated or changed or manipulated i mean she saw newsreels she saw the museum but she didn't truly see what happened at hiroshima and then he says to her nothing you know nothing so seeing is equated with knowing he's saying that just because you saw things or you think you saw things that doesn't mean you know anything about hiroshima so is seeing knowing can it ever be can we ever know I mean, for me, Renee is asking these really big questions of not just how we represent horror, but how do we see horror? How do we know horror of other people? And in terms of being an American, you know, what does it mean to see the horror that my own government created? Or I think of the violence and all the lives lost with the Iraq war. I mean, that's just in the past 20 years. I mean, hundreds of thousands of Iraqis have died in the Iraq war do we see that suffering you know we don't really see that suffering and we don't really know it 
but to know it do you have to see it well Renee doesn't let us see it he's withholding it from us he's withholding any kind of recreation or simulation of this horror he's only showing us the archival footage and I think he was asking something similar in Night and Fog with the Holocaust of showing the camps when they were liberated and the heaps and heaps of dead bodies. We see it. We see these bodies. We see this murder, this genocide, but do we know it? What do we know in the act of seeing? How can we ever represent that kind of atrocity? What does it mean to be a filmmaker and try to make a film about the Holocaust or about Hiroshima. And instead of Renee saying, oh yeah, I can do that, I think he's holding back. He's saying, I can't make these films. He's So he makes another kind of film because he can't actually represent it. So instead of, instead of making a film about Hiroshima, directly he makes it obliquely and he makes his main characters the Japanese man and the French woman he looks at her trauma by loving the, the German soldier you know this becomes how he grapples with war and violence and trauma and memory and there's this scene and I'm reading from the screenplay, Dura's screenplay. The man asks her, was he French, the man you loved during the war? And then in parentheses, there is this, at Nevers, a German crosses a square at dusk. And so there are all these moments in the film when we're in the present moment with the Japanese man and the French woman. But we will see these flashbacks of the woman back in Nevers, back in her French village back with the German soldier that she's in love with and it made me think about the way that memory is always stabbing the present moment that it really is like a stabbing that it's like this blade going into you and I think about the way that I remember things that I remember traumatic things or or even good memories you know any kind of memories and how you're in the present moment but then that memory comes in and it's it just stabs the the present in a way and that's always happening in this film she's in Hiroshima with the Japanese man but she's also in Nevers and he says it was there I seem to have understood that you must have begun to be what you are today he seems to know that her experience at Nevers and loving the German soldier is what made her who she was And it reminded me of a review I recently wrote about Marguerite Duras book, The Ravishing of Lowell Stein. And Lowell Stein is a woman who is haunted by her past. She's haunted by a moment when she went to a ball with her fiance, Michael Richardson. And at the ball, Michael Richardson meets another woman and he eventually leaves Lowell Stein for this other woman. And Lowell Stein goes on with her life. She goes on to get married. She has children, just like the woman in Hiroshima Mon Amour. Both her and the man are married. She has children. Lowell Stein goes on with her life, but she is deeply traumatized and haunted by the past. And she's always living 
in the past. Dura writes, the ball revives ever so slightly, shimmers, clings to Lowell. She gives it warmth, protects it, nourishes it, and it grows. Ventures forth from the protective layers, stretches, and one day is ready. She enters it. She enters it every day. And Dura writes, and in this enclosure that opens wide to her eyes alone, she begins again to live in the past. She arranges it, puts order into the dwelling place that is truly hers. Lolstein is someone who's always living in the past. The past is always present for her. And this is what I wrote in my review. I said, Lolstein is wounded. She cannot live unwounded. She cannot return to the state before the wound because she cannot escape the moment of the wounding, the moment at which her lover left her. And I also wrote about Lowell. I said, Lowell seems to per perpetually relive the ball where she lost Michael Richardson. It is forever present for her, forever happening. She inhabits both the present and the past. If anything, she configures a new present made almost wholly of the past. She is both the lull of the ball and the lull with her husband and children. She is both, or maybe sometimes she is neither. We do not know her. We cannot know her. Even those who are her friends who claim to know her cannot really know her. She is not accessible to them. All they do know is that Lowell is not fully there and is always slipping back into the past. And so I felt like the woman in Hiroshima, Mana Moore, was always in the past in some way. I'm going to take a break for one moment. All right, I'm back. Thank you for your patience. <laughs> I just had to stop for a minute. Sometimes I get interruptions, <laughs> but I want to continue doing this. I want to talk about this and finish it. So, for me, the the French woman, um, she's always in the past, I think, and she remembers her German lover, her German soldier. And like Lull, Lulstein, she is very haunted, very haunted by the past and by the trauma of the past. And then there's this really powerful, I, I think it comes near the end of the film, where she's telling the Japanese man about the German soldier and he takes on the identity of the German soldier in that he speaks in the first person as though he is the German soldier he says this is one exchange and this is again from Dura's screenplay he says but I'm dead he's saying it as the German soldier and she says nevertheless I call you even though you're dead she's saying you she's um, addressing the Japanese man as though he is the German soldier 
So, nevertheless, I call you, even though you're dead. Then one day I scream. I scream as loud as I can, like a deaf person would. That's when they put me in the cellar to punish me. So I thought it was very interesting how he becomes an actor in a way, or he becomes the embodiment of this German soldier. I just thought it was this interesting moment of like play acting in a way, and also sort of a resurrection of the past in a way, or resurrection of this German soldier. And um, I almost felt like what she felt for the Japanese man was maybe similar to what she had felt for the German soldier, that even though she's married with children, she may not have felt this kind of passion or this erotic longing until she met the Japanese man. I mean, that's just sort of my interpretation interpretation and then in parentheses later on in the screenplay Dara writes she is worn out from remembering I thought that was a powerful line how memory and how remembering we we valorize it we say well we need to remember the past we can't forget never again and so on but we don't really talk about how the act of remembering is exhausting that at some point when you're just trying to go about your life in the present moment that it is exhausting to remember the past constantly, to never be free of it, to never escape it, you know. Um, and the woman says, oh, what pain, what pain in my heart. It's unbelievable. She says, I see my life, your death, my life that goes on, your death that goes on. I thought that was a really... I feel like this film is a lot about grief, too, that she carries the memory of this German soldier with her, the memory of seeing him dead or watching him die. And this was someone she loved. This was like her first love. And her life goes on, but his death also goes on, that he's always dead or he's always dying. It's She always has the memory of it. And so I think in a way, her trauma, like I said, it's like Renee can't really directly address the trauma of Hiroshima, but many people that day lost people that they loved. I mean, people lost children, people lost spouses, people lost parents. There was a great deal of grief in Hiroshima. And perhaps her grief, you know, is, is a way to try and look at that, to look at the way that war takes people away from us and, and destroys lives and um, how that grief goes on that as long as you're alive you feel that grief and it doesn't really go away and it doesn't really end. And then she says, little girl with shaven head, I bequeath you to oblivion. And she says several things that she's giving to oblivion. She seems to me like she thinks that she can forget, that she can just let go of what happened, you know, 14, 15 years before, because this is, came out in 1959. So the war is still very raw. It's still very present, though it's been like 15 years. But she seems to think that she can throw all that into oblivion. And of course she can't. It's not really possible. I didn't believe that she could. And I said that in my original notes when I first watched the film or seriously looked at the film. That I don't think she can throw all that into oblivion and just forget. She's trying to forget the unforgettable. 
you know, how do people move on? And, and she talks about that in the first 15 minutes in the opening scene where she talks about the survivors of Hiroshima and how women gave birth and they gave birth with the knowing that possibly the child could be deformed because of the radiation, because of the bomb. People in Hiroshima continued to live, you know, they're, they are there in Hiroshima 15 years later doing, she's doing a film about peace. Hiroshima continues. The lives of the survivors, the lives of the people of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, their lives continue, you know. Um, even after the loss and the pain and the suffering, they keep living somehow. And that's, I think, a great mystery in the world, too, is, you know, as some of you may have listened to my recent episode about Abbas Kiristami's Coker Trilogy, and the Coker Trilogy... Coker is a town in northern Iran, and in 1990, that village and many other villages in northern Iran suffered a devastating earthquake that killed an estimated 50,000 people. And Kurostami's films, especially the last two, the last two in the trilogy, um, Through the Olive Trees and Life and, or Life and Nothing More or Life Goes On, it's amazing to see how people continue that after 50,000 people have died, after spouses have died, children have died, people still go on. They, they wash their clothes, they wash their dishes, they watch a soccer game, they, they continue to live, they get married, they, life does go on and people are resilient in many ways or they really have no choice and they just have to keep living. And so we see that with the French woman, too, that even though she lost her German lover, her German soldier lover, here she is. She's married. She has children. She's an actress. She has a life. She's still living. She, she didn't kill herself. She didn't stop living. She continues, just as the people in Hiroshima continue to live. But that doesn't mean that she's not wounded. It doesn't mean that she's not traumatized doesn't mean that the memory of the war, the memory of the loss and the horror don't still live inside of her somewhere and live in her body, you know? So I think that's an important thing to say as well, that yes, life continues, but people are profoundly traumatized and changed and, and um, devastated by certain experiences that they go through. So... I would definitely want to say that as well. I think that is all that I can say about this film. It's a film about war, trauma, memory, historical horror in terms of the bombing of Hiroshima. It's how do you... It's this very personal film because it's about these two lovers this man and this woman but it's also about this greater suffering this greater horror that's always at the edges of the film and always sort of present there between them is this very recent history of the atomic bombing and the horror that that unleashed and how that changed the world and but it's also about the the horror of the war in Europe you know, 
World War II didn't just happen in Japan or in the Pacific. It happened in Europe um, and with a very particular horror in terms of the Holocaust that happened on that continent. So, so we have a lot going on here. We have this personal story of this French woman, her trauma, how she's haunted by the German soldier that she loved and who was killed, how she was punished for loving him, punished for falling in love with him. And then we have Hiroshima itself and the vastness of that atrocity of how do you even approach it? How do you even address something like this? And I think it's something that a lot of directors or thinkers or writers wonder when it comes to genocide, when it comes to war, when it comes to the Holocaust, how do we grapple with these events? How do we write about them, represent them, put them on film? And I think Renee, in this film that's very fragmented, non-linear, doesn't have a plot. It's much closer to maybe poetry in a way. You have the juxtaposition of different images. Um, you have this very poetic screenplay by Marguerite Duras. It's very experimental and challenging, like so many of Renee films were. Um, and I think sometimes we need that kind of filmmaking that challenges us, that we have to keep digging into and thinking about. And I don't even think I've scratched the surface. I don't think I could scratch the surface. And I'm sure that I have left a lot out. Um, but like I said, I was trying to experiment a bit. I wanted to share... I wanted to share parts of Dura's screenplay. I wanted to share parts of John Hersey's um, journalistic story about Hiroshima. You know, the true stories of what happened on the ground. I wanted to share my own initial thoughts about the film when I first watched it in 2016. So I'm trying to sort of weave these texts and these words together. Um... And in the process, I'm trying to say that we can't, that it's very difficult to talk about this, that there is something very unspeakable about the horror of the Holocaust, the horror of Hiroshima. These are unspeakable things. These are also unknowable things. Um, that doesn't mean we shouldn't address them. It doesn't mean we shouldn't try to talk about them. But we need to do so in a very thoughtful and very critical way. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm just left with with Dura writing, impossible to talk about Hiroshima. All one can do is talk about the impossibility of talking about Hiroshima. So you don't talk directly about the issue. You talk about how you can't talk about it. But in the process, you're still talking about it. And so that's what matters is that even though we can't fully represent it, we can't fully know or see the horror of Hiroshima, in the act of talking about how we can't know those things, we're still talking about it. We're still recognizing it and bearing witness to it. I mean, if anything, this is a film about bearing witness through especially the archival footage, through the footage of the museum. The museum itself in Hiroshima bears witness to the horror. Um, so 
I like things that are sort of challenging. I sort of like things that are about the unspeakable. Or I like asking questions about how do we speak about the unspeakable? How do we write the unwritable? It's something that I think about in my own writing. Because I write a lot about grief. And about things that I've gone through. And loss, uh, loss that I've been through. And I really feel like grief is unspeakable, that there we don't really have a language for what it means when somebody who has always been in your life or who has been in your life for a long time is suddenly not there. We don't have a language for death. We don't have a language for what it means when you're still alive but someone you love is not alive. And what does that mean? I mean, I'm an atheist, so I don't think, well, I'm going to see them later on. I think that they're gone and it's over and that's it. And, um, that's a hard thing to live with. And so I do think grief is unspeakable. And yet I need to write about my grief. It's unwritable. It's unsayable. But I still need to put these things into language. And so I sort of see something similar with Renee and Dara and Hiroshima Mana more that this is unspeakable. This is unrepresentable you know, and yet more than anything, it needs to be represented and it needs to be explored and it needs to be remembered and, and grappled with. So, yeah, I think I've said everything that I can say about this film right now in my life, you know, where I'm at as a cinema person, as a cinephile, as a film lover, of course, I could return to it in the future and see so many other things, you know. So this is where I'm at right now in my life with it and what I think and feel about it. It's certainly one of my favorite films. Um, even though I can't always put into words what the film is or what it's saying or what it means, I think it often depends on the viewer or it depends on other factors, I guess, the way you see the film, you know. It is a difficult film to talk about. If you've listened to any of my other podcasts, like I did one about Christoph Kishlovsky's The Double Life of Veronique. And in that film, I talk, and in that podcast, I talked about how difficult that film is to talk about because it's about things that are intangible and nonverbal and transcendent that are sort of beyond language and beyond the speakable. It's about intuition and coincidence and and just things on on like another level of life on the level of sort of magic I think or, or just things that are difficult to talk about and I would argue that Hiroshima Mon Amour is very similar that this is a difficult film to talk about precisely because it it tackles issues of horror and atrocity and war and trauma. Um, but I wanted to try. I wanted to do what I could <laughs> to explore this film and why I think it's so important. So I hope there was value in what I have to say. So thank you for listening. I really do appreciate it. Until next time, keep watching great films.